Hello again, and welcome back to New Books in the American West, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Hausman, your host and visiting instructor of history at the University of Pittsburgh. Today I'm speaking with Dr. Kristen Hoganson, professor of history at the University of Illinois. Dr. Hoganson has written several books and articles, including uh, Consumers Imperium, The Global Production of American Domesticity, as well as pieces for the Journal of American History, the American Historical Review, and American Historian. We're talking about her latest book, The Heartland, an American history, which, as we sit here recording this interview, is due out with Penguin Press in a few weeks in April 2019, but will probably be freshly released by the time this podcast actually posts. So it's due out very shortly. Uh, Welcome to the New Books Network, Kristen. It's great to be here, Steve. Thank you so much for including me in your show. Yeah, of course. Uh, To begin, why don't we just start by having you talk a little bit about yourself. What's your academic background and how did you become interested in history in the first place? What's my academic background? So I've been teaching at the University of Illinois for about the last uh, 20 years. So in terms of my academic background, I'm an Illinois person uh, through and through. As for the question how I became interested in history, I grew up in a family that liked to go to historical sites and to talk about the past at the dinner table. So I think it's always been very much a part of my life. I should also notice or note, excuse me, that um, they're all hoarders. I come from a family of hoarders. And so I've been surrounded by artifacts from the past my entire life. And, you know, I think there's a certain sensibility of of feeling an attachment um, to the past through material objects that has profoundly shaped me in various ways. So I think I should have known from the start that I was destined uh, to become a historian, but I, I resisted that and tried other things after graduating from college, but was drawn back inevi- inevitably to history. And I think it was my junior seminar in college and my senior research um, paper that really turned me into a historian and made me realize that I wanted to pursue it as an occupation. And for my junior paper, I read a lot of personal letters. So I think it was the curiosity about people's intimate lives and the snooping um, component of that paper that, that got me hooked. And then for my senior thesis, I read a lot of um, testimony before congressional committees. And that too proved utterly um, fascinating to me. I think I like the puzzle component of it, of putting the different pieces together and and trying to figure out what was happening even when people didn't explicitly say what was happening. And, and it was the idea of solving a mystery that um, ultimately made me a historian. It's always very interesting to me, having talked to several people now for this podcast who are involved in professional history in one way or another, that so often it seems like interest in history begins at home, often in ways that people might not, might not even recognize at the time. And then they kind of come to that realization later on that, oh, I've kind of felt this way about the past. I've been interested in the past for my whole life, that it started when I was a child in a lot of ways. I think that's true, um, that we're often shaped by you know our early childhood experiences and by ways of thinking and, and um, um, trying to grasp the world around us um, in um, you know, ways that I guess we either never get over or <laughs> are really grateful that, um, yeah. that this was the way we were taught to see the world. So what got you interested in the topic of the book we're discussing here today, uh, in the American Midwest and in the heartland as both a place and as a concept? What brought you to this topic? 
That's a great question. I think when I talk about the book now, people assume that it is a response to the 2016 election, which has drawn a lot of attention um, to the heartland, um, including from um, on the part of people in coastal areas who may not have been thinking much about it um, prior to the 2016 election. But I should note that my interest in the region goes back much farther. Um, I'm a sixth generation Midwesterner. So even though I grew up basically in exile, mostly on the East Coast, um, family connections to the Midwest were always very important to me. Um, And I've always felt a a sense of attachment um, to um, the Midwest for those reasons. But I also, you know, was someone who tended to just visit um, relatives over the summer. And um, I bought into a lot of stereotypes about the region um, including the idea that it was more provincial, and, and I'm speaking specifically of the rural and small town um, Midwest, more provincial than global cities such as New York and L.A., and less connected um, than places on the edge, places like um, borderlands, um, communities, and coastal areas. But when I moved to Illinois um, many years ago, I turned on the radio when I was unpacking on a sweltering hot summer day and out came the weather forecasts and they were for China, Argentina and Brazil. And I realized that I had no idea where I had landed, that this was not you know, part of the Midwest that I um, was familiar with. And I had been reading quite a lot of things at the time about globalization. Um, this was the hot topic of the day. And listening to the radio forecast, um, to the weather forecast, I realized that all the geographies of globalization that I had been um, reading about in academic literature um, assumed that there were left behind places that just didn't really matter um, to that history and that the rural Midwest was one of those left behind places. So that made me very curious about the place that I had moved to and um in essence, laid the um, planted the seeds for the book. Although it took me a long time to write the book because I was already embarked on another project, which you know I had to wrap that up before getting going on the Heartland book. But um, ever since that first day as a, a resident of Illinois, um, downstate Illinois, in a rural county, um, I wanted to make sense of of the place. As we start to get into the book here, uh, I want to start. First, with what I guess you can call maybe maybe like a methodological question, um, mm-hmm. because you begin each chapter with um, a small section, not quite a vignette, but sort of a unique uh, a unique um, way of, of showing uh, basically transcribed primary sources. And you call these sections archival traces in the book. So why did you decide to include these and what function do you feel like they serve in the story that you're trying to tell here? Well, they serve several functions. So in the most self-serving level, um, I fought hard for a lot of material in the book. It took me a long time to write it. It was not easy to research. And I had to do just a ton of digging, you know, to write even a sentence and, and you know, just sometimes weeks to put a paragraph together. And I uncovered a ton of things that aren't in the book that I really didn't have the space or the time to pursue in more depth. So part of it was to register some of the things that I found that I didn't um, get to use that I, I was loath to let go of. But I think of more interest to listeners um, is that I wanted to signal that the story I was telling was partial. 
um, that even though it's a local history, I, I start with the county that I live in and I turn it inside out and follow all the threads that lead to other parts of the world, turning it into a global history. Um, but even though it's a local history, it is by no means comprehend, comprehensive that it could have gone in any one of a number of other directions. And so I wanted to provide a sense of that, right, of the teeny tiny little tidbits of um, information I was able to uncover um, that I could have tracked down, but in some cases had um, to let go of. So I think I I ended up following basically five um, main um, themes, and it it provides, I hope, a a really um, nuanced, multi-layered sense of place. Um, with each theme leading ultimately to a very different story and a different set of geographical connections, which if you layer them sort of transparency style, one on top of another, you get a very um, robust sense of place, of how a seemingly local place is embedded in much larger uh, networks. Um, But if I had followed different leads, I could have written a book that in many ways drew similar conclusions at the end, but the specific stories that would have brought me to the conclusions and the specific geographies um, might have ended up looking very different. Um, so that's what I was trying to um, to make a nod to in the archival traces um, excerpts that start each chapter. I think they're very successful at uh, at accomplishing that goal, and I really thought that they were pretty. They were, I mean, even though they they cover a wider range of topics, they're sort of a joy to read as a historian myself. Oh, I thank you very much. Are there any that really jump out to you? Let's see. Off the top of my head, um, I mean, as as a historian of the American West and of Native American history, I really appreciated, and we'll talk about this a little bit more later on, but all the material about the Kickapoos that are mm-hmm. in there, um, mm-hmm. I, I appreciated that. But uh, really, they set the tone for each chapter particularly well, so I thought mm-hmm. that they were, they were they were very useful in that way. Oh, great. Well, that was that was part of the intent, for sure. Since we're talking about place, you mentioned the idea of place uh, in your last uh, answer to my last question. Let's talk about place for a bit. So... When we're talking about the Midwest, where exactly are we talking about? And how does that place, how does the Midwest become known as the heartland? What do those, where are those regions and sort of what do they mean more symbolically as well? All your questions are good. Okay, so where is the Midwest? If you Google it, you'll get different maps, right? There is no consensus on where the Midwest is. I think many maps will start in um, North Dakota and uh, go down um, to at least uh, Nebraska, Missouri, and then eastward um, to Ohio. Um, But people disagree, right, exactly in which state should be included in the Midwest. So I like to think of it basically as the area between Appalachia and um, the Rockies. But the point of my book is actually to argue against set conceptions of place, against the tendency to try to draw boundaries, right? Or to start with boundaries and then to fill them in. Um, And my goal is to let the stories themselves reveal what the boundaries or the the regional definitions ought to be. So in that sense, the point of the book is not to, to embrace one specific definition of the Midwest, but rather to ask, what is this region? How do we define it? Where do its edges, you know, kind of blur into other geographies? And what are the the different threads that have stitched it to far wider 
tapestries. So I'm trying to to get at a way of understanding um, region and locality and place that is not all about wall building and looking inward and defining um, differences between insiders and outsiders to a particular region or place, but rather to um, make us more aware of how um, people in, say, places understood to be regions within the nation have actually been connected to others outside of those um, regions. As for the question, where did the idea of the heartland originate? There is a long backstory uh, to that. So the, the area of the country that I write about hasn't always been, obviously, the American heartland, nor either, or nor either just um, the American um, Midwest. So for a long time after being incorporated into the United States, it was the old um, Northwest, and then became known more as the Midwest or um, Middle West. And it wasn't until the 20th century that the word heartland caught on um, as a term for this place. So the word heartland was um, first used in 1904 by a British geographer, Sir Halford Mackinder, who was writing against the naval theories that were um, very popular in his time period. So the naval theories basically hold that whoever controls the oceans of the of the world will exercise global power. And Mackinder argued that, in fact, it was the land masses that really mattered um, in terms of, um, of national or imperial power. And more specifically, he said, whoever controls Eurasia will ultimately control the world. And this was a theory that was um, later embraced um, by Adolf um, Hitler and his Nazi um, regime and um, provided a lot of, you know, the logic behind their efforts to dominate um, all of Europe, thinking that that would ultimately lead to, you know, more um, even um, wider global power. And the word first began to circulate widely in the United States in the the context of World War II in writings on the war in Europe and and the struggle to control the European heartland. And then subsequently, after World War II, when it was the Soviets who became seen in the United States as the, excuse me, as the power that was trying to dominate the Eurasian heartland, uh, creating great anxiety in the U.S. in the early years of the Cold War, The term remained in play as a term about um, power, ultimately. So in terms of how it became embraced domestically, um, when when people were thinking about the Eurasian landmass, they also began to think about, hmm, what are the other sources of geographic power in the world? And and a lot of attention then was drawn to North America as not as significant in terms of the total landmass and the population as Eurasia but nonetheless as a significant locus of um, land-based power. So in a lot of its early usages as applied to the United States, the word heartland was associated explicitly with um, just the unparalleled um, power exercised by the United States in the post-World War II um, world. And it was typically pinned to urban industrial areas. But at the same time that the word heartland came to convey the industrial um, 
uh, capacity of the United States, it also took on, um, in parallel fashion, a different set of meanings. And these meanings were more about nostalgia and appreciation of a more um, agrarian um, lifestyle and the sense that um, there was a symbolic core to the nation um, that was, in fact, imperiled by some of what was happening in the urban industrial areas that were producing so many manufactured goods. So those areas were seen as, as um, uh, populated um, by more Southern and Eastern uh, Europeans, more by African Americans, and people who had more white nationalist um, um, inclinations of a certain vein um, thought that the rural heartland really embodied what they saw as essential national characteristics that were imperiled and that needed to be shored up at um, all costs. So that is the origin of the, the vein of the heartland that I write about, which is the idea of the rural and small town Midwest as being um, the quintessentially all-American um, place. And you write in the book that the heartland has a reputation for provincialism. And I'm wondering if you think that this reputation is is fairly earned or if that's sort of a misnomer in a lot of ways. Well, as I just said, um, the heartland has had this reputation um, as being the quintessentially all-American place. And a lot of that perception of the region has to do with the sense that the rural and small town Midwest is more local um, than other parts of the country. It's more insulated by virtue of its geographic position surrounded by a major um, land uh, mass. Um, that is the, the root of um, the, the key um, locus of American isolationism. And as you said, that it is um, you know, one of the most provincial places um, in the United States. And I have to say that there is plenty of provincialism um, to be found in the rural and small town Midwest. But I think to pin the entire burden of provincialism on the Midwest is to really do it a disservice, that it, it really distorts the nature of, um, of the region, that in fact we can find provincialism wherever we look, um, including in the, you know, coastal megacities that see themselves as the hotbeds of cosmopolitan sensibilities that, you know, there's a certain provincialism in, in those assumptions as um, well. So I wanted to write about that um, in the book um, because I think it really matters significantly um, for our understandings of how the United States came to be um, what it is today and um, for our understandings about the Midwest in particular, which has often been written off um, by historians and um, wider audiences as in not really worth much attention or consideration, right? With the assumption being well, that it is this local provincial isolated um, kind of place and that it's fundamentally dull and uninteresting in a world of global connections. And, and I wanted to question that and, um, you know, see, see if there are other stories that really haven't um, been explored um, given the general tendency to um, 
uh, right off the Midwest. And then I wanted to pursue the idea that geography is somehow destiny, right? The geographic uh, assumptions behind that, that people are so inevitably shaped by their place on the map that, um, that some kind of geographical determinism sets in and that people who are in the middle of the country by virtue of that location really are um, insulated and insular um, because, because of um, where they are. And the more I began to research the region, the more apparent it became that the people in the center of a major landmass, such as North America, are actually in the middle of everything, rather than being on the periphery of places that are assumed to be more important. Um, and as you know from having read the book, that one of the major conclusions is that the stereotype of Midwestern um, provinciality um, that is really a stereotype about the rural and small town Midwest, not about places like Chicago, which have long been recognized as global cities, that that stereotype um, really shows a signal ignorance of histories of connection that have not been visible to people writing from major cities or from coastal um, areas or other parts of the country, that they just have not noticed or um, identified the site-specific ways that the Midwest has been connected to other parts of the world. Um, nor have they, in fact, noticed, you know, many of the ways that the Midwest actually resembles other parts of the country, right? The, we, too, in the Midwest have people who have um, been immigrants, who have served in the U.S. military, who've been involved in missionary enterprises. We, too, have access to box, star, box stores and imported goods and Caribbean cruises, you know, for people of a certain... Um, um, you know, economic uh, status. And the, the things that we share with the rest of the country, you know, often kind of get dismissed, as well as the things um, that um, outsiders tend not to know about at all, because they are foreign to their own um, specific experiences. So let's talk about some of these global connections then. And uh, to get us started, tell us before Champaign, Illinois was part of the American Midwest and before the American Midwest even was the American Midwest, as you say in the book, it was the center of the world to a different group of people. So can you tell us about the Kickapoos and their relationship to the region um, that would become the Midwest in a later era? Yes, I'm so glad you, you asked because the book is um, bookended by chapters on um, the, the Kickapoo um, people. So if you go back uh, to the time of Columbus, most Kickapoos were living in what is now the Windsor, Ontario and Detroit, Michigan area. And then what happened as a result of the fur trade is the, the colonial violence that stemmed from that pushed Kickapoo people um, farther to the south and west. So they developed an even greater presence um, in southwestern um, Michigan, in Indiana, in Illinois, um, which is um, the group that I focus on the most, and in Wisconsin. Um, but then in the 19th century, in the era of Indian removal, um, the Kickapoos who were living in the Midwest um, were forcibly... Um, um, expelled um, as, as part of the process of basically ethnic cleansing and Indian removal in that time period. And so that caused Kickapoos from central Illinois uh, to um, move to places um, such as, um, you know, for, for a shorter period of time, Iowa, 
Missouri, um, ultimately to Kansas and Oklahoma. And then for some Kickapoos to move as far um, to the south and west as the um, northern um, Mexican province of Tejas, now Texas, and then even um, farther south into the um, um, uh, Mexican state of Coahuila, um, where they eventually got an ajido, which is a community um, land grant. Um, so what becomes apparent um, when you kind of track the geographies of the Kickapoo people in the 19th century is that they were astoundingly vast, right? Stretching um, from northern Mix, um, Michigan, like um, trading connections in the Straits of Mackinac, um, as far south as Mexico City, and indeed even farther south um, to the town of uh, Cuernavaca, um, for example, in Mexico. Um, so um, now I'm losing my train train of thought. Um, <laughs> I'm asking big questions. Yeah, so big I questions. <laughs> yeah, and and the other thing I should say, you know, just you know, thinking more about um, the, the history of the Kickapoo um, people and and. Um, how how we make sense of it um, in terms of thinking about place is that how the Kickapoo people um, experienced um, their position in place was very different from how the pioneers who displaced them regarded their position in place. So in addition to moving um, huge distances over time as a people, um, within each generation, um, Kickapoos were um, seasonally mobile. So they would, in the warmer um, months of the year, um, live in agricultural villages where they would plant. Um, but in the colder months of the year, um, they uh, tended to travel more widely to hunt, um, to um, secure um, protein and food um, that would, um, you know, uh, get them um, through the, the months of um, want um, when, you know, they couldn't be growing corn and uh, uh, squash and beans and so forth. And so in addition to the general trajectory that I just talked about going from Michigan um, and, and on Ontario down to Mexico, um, there are also reports of Kickapoos going as um, far to the Southeast as uh, the Floridas um, to, to hunt and in fact, as far uh, west as like Sonora and Arizona, um, as, as part of their kind of um, uh, historical tendency to be highly um, mobile in the 19th um, century. And if you um, translate um, the meaning of the word Kickapoo or understand kind of the self-conception of, of what it means to be Kickapoo, um, it, it means to be a people who move about and walk about. So in the very idea of nationhood and, and selfhood and Kickapoo-ness, there is a sense of it's not about a specific place on the map. It's not about being walled into a particular location, but it's about a way of being in the world that is an open way of being in the world um, that involves um, the capacity to um, move through space. So the pioneers who came in um, to Illinois territory and then later um, after 1818 to the state of Illinois had a very different idea about their place in the world, which is highly ironic 
because by definition, pioneers are people who came from someplace else, uh, who then relocated um, in, um, you know, in the case that I'm uh, writing about in the American um, Midwest. And the pioneers um, invented basically the idea of locality. So it had not existed in places such as central Illinois, where the Kickapoo had been living, um, because it, it wasn't an operative category um, for um, Native nations such as the Kickapoo. But when the pioneers came in, um, they really felt like they had to make claims to place, that they knew that they were usurpers who had, who had um, forcibly dislocated uh, people with prior claims to place. So they began to write all kinds of local histories and form old settler societies and, and celebrate their pioneer heritage. And in all these accounts, um, including in ones that you know, were published in, in their um, local histories, they celebrated themselves as people who had made the place local, that they had uh, built their um, houses, um, fenced in their farms, built their hedgerows, and had established themselves as the people who literally owned the place in juxtaposition to the people who they had um, forced out and in juxtaposition to um, later um, arri arrivals, um, many from Europe, who were pouring in. So I, I think the point that I'm trying to make is that they invented locality for self-serving political reasons claiming themselves to be local because they knew that there would be claims to rights and belonging and power and, and authority that would follow from those um, claims. And then to go back to the Kickapoos, the profound irony um, of, of this is that the pioneers actually made the Kickapoos um, more local, that they ended up really constraining um, their ability to move through space um, in part through um, um, having them be basically incarcerated on um, reservations um, from which um, Kickapoos, like other Native peoples, could not leave in many cases without written passes um, or, or and in addition to the written passes with um, agents who would accompany them um, on their travels if they left the reservation. Some were um, imprisoned on U.S. Um, uh, military um, posts, such as Fort Leavenworth. Some ended up, this is you know, like the reservation on steroids, in the U.S. penal system. And you should know that incarceration was not you know, an indigenous practice, that there are no precedents for it, really, in indigenous law and legal um, practice to lock up people for offenses. So this was really, you know, outside outside of their own um, historical experiences of, of, of um, um, trying to seek justice. Um, so Kickapoos end up in the U.S. Um, penal system. Um, some of their children then are sent to boarding schools or to um, other um, schools, say, on um, reservations, where instead of learning about geography through moving through landscapes, they learn about geography from uh, textbooks as they sit at desks all day long. Uh, Kickapoo women were taught by Indian agents that they should be more uh, domestic, that they should devote themselves to housekeeping, and there is real pressure on them to, to lead more homebound lives, um, to spend more time you know, cleaning um, at home rather than um, um, being out and about. 
And then there are also quarantines um, that that are enforced at various moments of time that, again, have the implication of sedentarizing Kickapoo people and, and keeping them um, spatially um, uh, bounded. And then if you think about um, things like the U.S. South in the antebellum um, period and how racialized the landscape was and how difficult it was for people of color, including enslaved um, uh, people and Native Americans to move through landscapes that had slave patrols and, and you know, people kind of monitoring who's going where and in which more and more um, farms are being um, fenced and, and claimed as private property, um, meaning that um, uh, people who are passing through would be identified as trespassers and as outsiders and if they hunted on the land or, or um, used the land that they were traveling through to um, feed themselves, then, you know, that would be considered a kind of taking on the part of the property holder um, with impunitive um, consequences. So in that whole context that I've, you know, spelled out, what, what ends up happening for the Kickapoos is that they suffer this implosion of space. Um, and that helps explain the attraction of Mexico, which I just mentioned earlier, is that some Kickapoos chose to go to Mexico, not only so that they could have a place to call their own in the form of the land grant or a hito that they got um, from the Mexican government, but also because it was more um, um, open geographically to Native peoples who could move more through space without Indian agents and patrols and a central government trying to crack down on them and um, uh, keep them spatially um, constrained. So I think in, in terms of the larger takeaway for, you know, what the specific case study of the Kikapu people tells us about Native American history more generally is that yes, of course, land losses mattered profoundly. Um, removal policies mattered profoundly. That the harm was real um, and and enduring and and significant. But there's another component of settler colonialism that mattered profoundly that I think has not gotten as much attention. And that component of settler colonialism is an implosion of space and the effort to spatially constrain. Uh, Native peoples um, and reduce their ability to have a more open uh, way of being in the world. And that ultimately culminates in border enforcement policies um, that make it very difficult um, now and in the past um, for people um, who identify as Native Americans or who have Native American ancestry um, in many cases, to cross from Mexico into the United States or, um, in fact, you know, the U.S.-Canadian border as well, then the same dynamics can uh, kick in. And, you know, one of the just really moving things, I think, you know, about realizing the full geographic scope of the Kickapoo story is the realization, one, that they're not the only Native American group that has a border straddling story. And two, that in this era that we live in um, of constant talk about walls and the need to you know, build barriers that keep people out of the United States, specifically people from Mexico and Central America out of the United States via wall building on the U.S.-Mexican border, that some of the people who are the targets of this, this um, exclusionary um, um, impulse 
actually have ancestral connections to the United States, including to the heart of the United States, to the American heartland. And that if we regard them um, in, in a broad historical perspective and, and understand these longer, deeper histories, um, we can see their struggle in part as a struggle for a right to return, which I think casts it in political terms that are very different from how um, efforts to uh, cross the border into the United States are typically cast in um, wall-building discourse um, now. I really appreciated in the section about the Kickapoos, about how you showed how um, how those the kind of local histories that historians often rely on, probably pretty uncritically, uh, unfortunately to say, but how they're often weaponized uh, to create narratives of locality um, and of that, that that justifies settler colonialism in the Midwest. I mean, around North America generally, but in the Midwest in particular, in ways that that really. Um, undercut concepts of Kickapoo sovereignty, and um, and 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 it, you cast those in a much more uh, much more complicated light than I had looked at them before. So that was one part of that section on the Kickapoos and on this idea of of localism, and and that I that I really appreciated. Oh, you! I should have mentioned that earlier. And in fact, you put that really uh, well. The the idea of weaponizing local histories. So so one thing I forgot to say in that long uh, you know statement I just uh, made is that a lot of local histories, as part of their efforts to claim rights and belonging for um, pioneers, um, was that pioneers were people who put down roots in juxtaposition to Native peoples who never put down roots in the same way. And so they would describe people such as the, as the Kickapoos as inherent ramblers or rovers or, or use different um, you know, adjectives that would just convey, oh, they don't have a sense of connection to place. What they don't say is one of the reasons, you know, in addition to some of the reasons I just spelled out, why people such as the Kickapoos uh, moved in the early 19th century was that they were victims of warfare, right? That um, military units, militia units were attacking their villages and they were destroying their stores of corn, you know, that they needed to survive um, in the months ahead and to have seeds to plant in the, um, you know, upcoming uh, spring. And that often the duress of suffering from colonial violence made Native peoples even more mobile than they um, had been uh, previously. Um, and then another thing that happens, um, in addition to rights claims um, on the part of, you know, the uh, settler colon colonists who call themselves pioneers, um, early on is that down the road as Native peoples get um, displaced, then in subsequent uh, places of residence, the people say, well, they're new arrivals. And because they're new arrivals, they don't have any claims uh, to place in, in the place that they've been forced to move to. So then it um, is a, you know, a set of political beliefs that gets perpetuated in a kind of an escalating fashion over the generations. Um, with consequences for Native peoples then who have a much harder time uh, claiming rights uh, to place. Tell us also about livestock. Uh, animals are another way that the Midwest becomes a global, uh, a global region um, throughout the 19th century. So tell us about how cattle and about how pigs are indicative of the global nature of the heartland in, in the, the kind of long 19th century. How is American empire rooted in these histories of heartland animals? 
But animals are part of a larger story of biological transformation. So let me just start with that bigger story, and then we'll cut you know, back to, to the cattle and pigs that you just uh, referenced. So I live in Illinois. That's the place that I take as a starting point for my book. And Illinois is known as the prairie state. But if you look at maps of Illinois, less than one-tenth of one percent of the landscape is actually native tall grass prairie. So the rest of the state has been thoroughly transformed um, by biological importations. You know, so you might think, oh, this is just a story of urbanization, but it's bigger than urbanization. It's even in rural areas of the state look nothing like they looked like um, prior to the advent of European uh, colonialism. So many of the transformations um, were quite purposeful and many of them um, really took off in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. And we, we can see some of the transformations, you know, just from the air. They're, they're so significant. So think about things like the field of, fields of soy, right, that, that are checkered with cornfields um, across central Illinois. Soy is an East Asian um, uh, crop that was introduced um, around the turn of the 20th century. But you can also find it if you have the tools, if you have a microscope, on a much smaller um, scale. So at the same time, um, scientists began introducing um, bacteria that they had imported from Germany that could fix nitrogen in the soil, um, which would you know, keep the soil um, healthier and um, make it more productive um, over the generations. So you, know, you can't see that from the air, but again, it's this really significant biological um, transformation. If I look out my kitchen window into my backyard, um, I have an apple tree, which is like buzzing with, you know, honeybees in, in the summer. Many of those bees are descendants of recent immigrants that were brought in again at the turn of the 20th century because they were thought to be superior to native bees. If you look at the trees themselves, they too are, are descendants of late 19th century um, importations of uh, cuttings that were thought to yield better apples um, than ones that had been brought um, previously um, by European co colonists to the eastern states um, of the United States. And, and these are not the exceptions, right? That this, this is the rule um, for the biological um, plant diversity of the rural Midwest, that if you look at the region in ecological terms, it's just profoundly un-American um, because of the, the sheer range and number of um, uh, plants that were purposefully introduced to make um, the region more like places that um, the European settlers knew from home, um, but also as the case of soy um, and, and sorghum, uh, suggests just to um, enhance profitability and enable them to reach uh, global markets, even through things that were not at all fami familiar um, to them upon arrival. So that's the backstory then against which the animal um, importations uh, took place. So the part of Illinois that I live in, I live about 150 miles uh, south of Chicago was one of the last parts of the state to be densely inhabited by Euro-American uh, settlers. And the reason why is because it was so swampy. It was basically thoroughly wetlands. And from the air now, you can still see residues of that. You can still see like puddles in the fields um, at this time of year. They're called flutals and birders like to go to them, you know, to, to see what migratory birds, you know, land and, um, and make use of the puddles. 
Um, That's a great word, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but the fields don't look anything at all like what they looked like in 1800 when they were basically, you know, it, it was marsh. Um, and those early conditions meant that it was very difficult for farmers moving in to cultivate large pieces of land, um, you know, because the seeds just wouldn't take hold in such wet conditions. And so that made Illinois a major rangeland um, in the early to mid 19th century. And the initial um, animal that was most profitable um, uh, um, it, it was the cattle industry, um, and and the land was used for grazing purposes, where the you know the uh, cows could go and you know kind of higher land where they could get um, more grass, and then the early cattle entrepreneurs then um, because there were no good transportation networks, no you know major east west rivers, no railroad railroad lines or highways at that um, point in time, they had to walk their animals from central Illinois all the way to the markets of Western Pennsylvania um, during the course of which, you know, the animals would lose quite a lot of weight. And I think probably the drivers would too, because it was quite an arduous trip. They had to swim a couple rivers. They had to, you know, watch out for um, bandits on the road. Uh, They had to keep their animals in line. Uh, It was really, you know, quite exhausting. So, over the course of the 19th century, they begin to drain their fields and um, gain the capacity to plant more grains, um, a major grain of which was maize um, or corn, which was used largely for livestock um, fattening. And then in the aftermath of the Civil War, those who were still um, um, using their, their land for grazing purposes began to get outcompeted by places to the Southwest, particularly Texas, which became a kind of major ranch land with the capacity um, to, you know, just produce massive numbers of, um, of um, animals, um, kind of rangy, tough, hardy um, animals um, that could be sold for um, meat uh, purposes. So the farmers then in, in places like central Illinois and what was, um, becoming the uh, Corn Belt, decided that they had to have a different economic model uh, to compete. And so what they did is they started to um, import high-end animals for breeding purposes that they thought would um, uh, mature faster, put on weight faster, and marble um, in ways that would make them attractive to the higher-end markets of the U.S. East Coast and uh, Europe. And to get those animals for um, breeding purposes, they went not only to Britain and other European countries um, starting in the 1850s, but they also um, went um, to Ontario, um, especially after uh, the Civil War. And in Ontario, there were a number of livestock breeders of British ancestry um, and some of the most prominent of Scottish ancestry in particular, who had these close family ties to breeders in Aberdeenshire and who, through those familial networks, would import um, you know, some of the most valuable livestock in the world at the time uh, to their farms um, in Ontario. And then U.S. buyers from the Midwest, through this kind of densely felted a network of livestock breeders would travel to the Canadian fairs to purchase animals, and the Canadians would come to the U.S. fairs to sell their animals. 
and they would import animals that were understood um, as basically aristocratic animals. They were pedigreed animals whose ancestries were traced in herd books back through the generations and who had names um, in many cases um, that were prefaced by words like Lord or Duke um, or Sir um, that indicated that, that these were, you know, European high value animals that would connect the breeders of places like East central Illinois to the aristocratic breeding uh, circles um, of the old uh, world. At the same time that they're importing these animals um, that were basically racialized animals, right? Understood as Northern European, uh, pure-blooded aristocratic animals. At the same time as they're importing those animals to their farms for breeding purposes to improve the quality of their herds, they also are becoming more invested in the fattening industry, the uh, feedlot uh, style fattening of range animals uh, prior to their slaughter um, for meat purposes. And to obtain animals for fattening purposes, they looked in the other direction uh, to the U.S. Southwest. If you look at older histories of the range cattle industry, um, they tend to just exclude Mexico, right, from the map, that the, the, the um, geography basically ends with the southern uh, Texas um, boundary. But I dug around a bit, and it became very clear that the borderlands between northern Mexico and Texas were quite open in the late 19th and early 20th uh, centuries, that there was a lot of border crossing back and forth, that Texas ranchers would go to Mexico to acquire animals, um, they would invest in ranches in Mexico. Uh, it was easy to have animals, you know, wander off of different ranches, cross the river, the Rio Grande, one way or the other. Um, there was tons of rustling that went on back and forth across the border. And so to say that the animals that were imported for fattening purposes were just Texas animals really met, misses that there was a huge Mexican um, component to the story. And the thing that tipped me off to the Mexican component of the story was different um, disease outbreaks, um, which were quite concerning to Midwestern farmers um, because not only did they um, suffer losses from the animals um, that they had brought in for fattening purposes that were diseased, but also the high end, the expensive animals that they were breeding on their farms um, were actually more likely uh, to become quite ill and to die. Um, from diseases introduced by the animals um, from the South. The leading um, disease, um, the one that figures largely in the book, um, was known um, as the Spanish fever, um, and on occasion is Mexican um, fever. And it, it caused all kinds of horrible you know, symptoms like frothing at the mouth and stiffening and, and was uh, lethal to high-end um, animals. And farmers were able to quickly figure out that it was something that was introduced by animals um, brought in from the South, either in some cases up the Mississippi on steamships, on the decks of ships, but in other cases, um, animals that had been um, driven long distances over land to railroad lines that could then carry them um, from uh, places you know, such as Kansas um, to um, the feedlots of states such as Illinois. Um, they realized that those animals were the vectors of disease. And rather than regarding 
um, the Mexicans as alliance partners um, in combating um, animal-borne diseases, much as they regarded Canadians as alliance partners when northern animals um, introduced diseases, as they sometimes did, uh, most notably in a disease known as pleuropneumonia, um, which was also quite uh, lethal. Um, U.S. Um, Agriculture Department um, officials and you know state officials and farmers regarded Mexicans as in essence the threat and thought that they have to be kind of walled off that there should be exclusionary pol- uh, policies that would um, prevent um, animals from the south um, from a- uh, entering um, kind of quarantined areas um, in the Midwest. Um, uh, that were at risk from uh, disease introductions, which again is really, really different from the you know, policies adopted um, in respect to the um, animals introduced direct from um, Canada and Europe. And instead of regarding the Mexican animals as high-end um, animals um, worthy of you know, individual attention and, and huge investments, uh, exemplifying the highest racial stock, they knew that most of them were steers that had been castrated that um, would not carry their lines forward, and they devalued them in racialized terms, seeing them as the descendants of um, animals brought over from Spain in the time of Cortez, um, which were thought to have African ancestors um, from northern um, Africa, and that rather than being improved over time, as European animals from Northwest Europe and uh, you know, then exported via Canada in some cases had been, they thought that the Spanish animals had only degenerated over time um, um, in the rangelands of Northern Mexico and um, uh, places such as Texas. So they really regarded the animals as, um, e- even though they were economically dependent on them, they regarded the Southern animals as, you know, kind of racialized menaces uh, to uh, their um, higher end herds. And they regarded Mexico in general and its entire kind of ranch industry as a place that really should be um, uplifted um, through the introduction of genetic stock um, from white farmers and their northern European um, animals. So I think what I'm getting at is that through the story of um, cattle, we can see um, that the rural Midwest was very much a borderlands place um, in the late 19th, 19th and early 20th centuries. Um, but a borderlands place in the sense that it was on the periphery of two borderlands systems, the um, U.S. Canadian system to the north and the U.S. Mexican system to the south, and that the U.S. Um, Midwest, and I'm you know thinking specifically of the, the feedlots and, and um, cattle uh, raising farms, were places where those two borderlands came together, and that Midwestern farmers looking to the north drew one set of conclusions about affinity and connection and collaboration and, and a, you know, a desire to be associated with the Europeanists um, exemplified by aristocratic animals. And they looked to the south and, and they saw, you know, a very different set of relationships um, um, that led them to draw conclusions about um, the desirability of uh, building walls um, uh, not collaborating, 
uh, disparaging um, people and animals uh, to the South and regarding themselves as racially superior and different. As for the pigs, as I said at the very beginning, the, the book, you could see it as a bunch of, you know, transparency slides that are kind of um, layered on top of each other. And the pig story is like the cattle story um, in the sense that it involves racialized animals um, that produce certain affinities with Northern Europe. Um, but it also draws attention to, to different geographies and to different kind of political connections. So, so let me elaborate a little bit on, on what I'm getting at with that. So even in the early cattle raising days, um, farmers invested heavily in pigs, um, in part because they could let them loose in the fields where their cattle were grazing and the pigs would kind of glean the leftovers. So it was kind of an early, you know, um, effort to maximize uh, profits. And going back even farther, um, you know, the, the very first pioneers um, brought, brought their um, like almost semi-feral um, pigs with them. Um, just because of their capacity to fend for themselves off in the um, woods and um, the easy access to protein they could get from these pretty much wild um, animals. But over time, as they develop aspirations of reaching more export markets, um, they realize, as they had in the case of cattle, that they need to improve um, the, their um, lines of uh, hogs um, so that they wouldn't have such like oily, nasty uh, flavored uh, meat, um, and so that they could um, reproduce earlier, fat and faster, and and as I suggested with the you know the oiliness of the meat, they would just taste better and have better texture, and be of more interest to the high end markets of Europe um, and the Northeast rather than just local consumption and the low end markets of the um, uh, plantation economies of the Caribbean which were major importers of U.S. pork uh, products that were quite often used uh, to feed um, enslaved workers or newly emancipated workers of color who um, were um, um, in many cases are overwhelmingly quite impoverished and, and not capable of, of paying top dollar uh, for their meat products. So, so U.S., um, farmers in the Midwest start looking for uh, genetic material. And as in the case of cattle, they import a lot of it from Europe. And one of the most popular lines, but not the only line um, with European ancestry imported in the late 19th century was the Berkshire hog. And there was quite a you know, Berkshire phenomenon in the late 19th century where it, it, it you know, just had all kinds of um, uh, press coverage as the leading line of, of pigs for its, you know, many, uh, uh, virtues and uh, um, there were Berkshire breeding associations and and a you know, Berkshire kind of fair circuit where if you had a pedigreed pig then you had access to compete in different competitions to win medals and prizes and there was all kind of Berkshire policy that was set um, by teams of people from not only the United States which had invested heavily in Berkshires but in places like Canada and Britain as well they would get together in these you know gatherings to determine what attributes they would look like look for in the breed and the thing i want to point out about the pig is that even though in terms of its ancestry even though it was understood as a british pig um, the farmers who were buying into it knew that it had Chinese ancestry, recent Chinese ancestry, 
um, via the ships of the British Empire that had brought East Asian animals back to uh, Britain uh, for livestock improvement um, purposes. And I, I don't want to get too far off topic, but y- you said I have you know time to to ramble. So so let me tell you yeah, like the the deep story, right? of um, the, the separation between European and Asian hogs. So, so people who've studied um, their genetics have decided or determined that their last common ancestor um, uh, prior to the early modern um, period was about 7,000 years back. And somehow, around 7,000 years ago, the two lines of pigs diverged. So European pigs um, tended to be um, kept in pens for only part of the year and fed the waste from, say, the household, right, the the slops and, and so forth. And then in the fall, they would be let loose to go forage in the woods for um, mast overwhelmingly. So that would be like the acorns or beech nuts, uh, that kind of thing that would fall to the forest floor. And so they had to be very hardy animals um, to survive, you know, in in the woods. Um, They often crossbred with wild boars, which, you know, kind of just um, enhanced their their wild attributes. And they were known as being just like nasty, mean, uh, vicious fighting animals. But it was the the practice of letting them loose in the woods um, in the fall before the slaughter that actually put enough, you know, kind of meat and fat on them that made it worth keeping them for the whole rest of the year. So, so that was kind of the business model for raising pigs um, in Europe uh, through the medieval period. But in China, they had a really different um, practice, um, which was keeping animals penned up, um, keeping their swine penned up. Uh, year round, um, uh, constantly feeding them um, um, household um, and other scraps, and then selectively breeding them um, um, over time, which meant that the Chinese pigs, um, over the course of many, many generations, developed much longer um, intestines, which enabled them to squeeze more nutrients out of each unit of food that they were fed which then had implications for their capacity to fatten. So basically, the Europeans got a 7,000-year shortcut um, when they started importing um, pigs and using them for breeding uh, purposes. So one of the resulting animals was the Berkshire hog, uh, which was widely adopted um, in the Midwest. And even farmers who weren't high-end Berkshire breeders would often, you know, uh, have access to stud boars who then could affect the character of their entire um, herd. And so through the access to this higher-end animal, um, they were able to develop um, uh, meat products that were more attractive to European uh, purchasers. But they didn't have the capacity to get these meat products to the European market um, very readily Um, prior to the construction of the railroad, because their main means of transportation was waterborne transportation, um, which, you know, if you know about like the Mississippi watershed, you know, it it flows south 
um, towards the um, Gulf of Mexico, which would mean shipping things via flatboat and ultimately steamboat uh, to New Orleans. And then the most proximate markets were the Caribbean markets, which were not high end. And it was a, a lengthier trip and a more complicated trip to make it all the way to the most lucrative markets, particularly via Liverpool to the British markets. So to access markets, they need better transportation networks. But the United States in the 19th century is a developing country, and investment capital is really hard to come by. So the first land-grant railroad, which was the Illinois Central um, Railroad, turned to London to finance the construction of the railroad. And they get the capital that they need from London at better rates than they would have gotten in New York. And they also end up buying not only some of the earliest engines, but some of the earliest rails were, in fact, imported from um, Britain um, and then laid in this line that stretched from Chicago through central Illinois all the way down to New Orleans. And what this line meant was that rather than having to float everything downstream, farmers could ship their stuff up to Chicago, where packing got concentrated. And then Chicago had all these lines that led to the east, enabling um, rapid transport um, to the um, harbors um, from which many ships left for Western Europe, including Liverpool. So it gave them access. This London capital gave them access to European um, markets. And then what happens when the um, pork arrives in Europe is that it outcompetes um, uh, meat products that are produced by European farmers, causing some, uh, particularly in Britain, which was the leading importer of American pork um, products, causing some rural people to not be able to make a go of it on um, their farms or the farms where they had been working as like uh, uh, tenant uh, laborers. So that causes even more um, uh, dislocation in Europe, causing some people to emigrate to the United States um, and to Canada and to settler colonies um, such as um, Australia and um, New Zealand. And then all these emigrants are entitled by law to a certain amount of meat, typically salt pork, on their journeys. So it's like the U.S. pork product is, is um, literally nourishing for their colonialism. And the British military also becomes a purchaser and user of U.S. pork products um, so that it's not only, you know, things like polar expeditions um, and Abyssinian expeditions, um, but also the U.S., uh, uh, excuse me, not U.S., British Navy um, is, is purchasing um, pork that's barreled and labeled things like mess pork um, to feed its, uh, its kind of global military presence um, in the 19th uh, century. So the point of this story is, is, you know, to draw our attention to a whole different set of geographies, which in many cases are British colonial um, geographies, and to draw attention to just the investments in empire on the part of U.S. pork producers who really valued um, the, the British um, export market for their um, product, and to point out that the empire that they were deeply invested in wasn't always their own. Um, settler colonial um, empire or even uh, like U.S. Um, activities in, in places like uh, Cuba and Puerto Rico and Panama and the Philippines, but really deep investments in British um, imperial um, expansion, in part because of their economic interconnections. And let me just say one more thing um, about uh, the pigs, is that the Berkshire hog and, and other 
um, you know, lines of hogs that were developed in this time period were understood in, in writings about them as Anglo-Saxonist pigs. Um, that they were understood as, despite their Chinese um, ancestry, as preeminently British animals. And like British colonial officials who were widely described in British, you know, imperial materials at the time as being able to inhabit any part of the world and to govern and dominate any part of the world, writings on the Berkshire hog insisted that it was a universal hog, that in contrast to other lines of, of hogs that were locally specific or site-specific that would only do well in any one a place, the Berkshire hog was the universal animal and all, you know, of the most advanced modern people of the world would be investing in the Berkshire hog and that it would advance the cause of Anglo-Saxon, uh, Anglo-Saxonist domination uh, worldwide. And to conclude, you know, this rather lengthy you know, disquisition on the Berkshire hog, I should note that U.S. colonial officials um, in, in places like um, Puerto Rico and Panama, in fact, um, uh, became you know Berkshire hog breeders and promoters, thereby seeming to back up some of these claims about the value of the Berkshire um, hog for colonial rule. I want to jump ahead a little bit into the 20th century now, because there's a phrase that often pops into people's heads when they uh, talk about or think about the Midwest, especially people that are not from the area themselves, which is the phrase flyover country. It's a phrase that I've definitely heard in my own life. And you take that phrase to task somewhat in the book in a couple different ways. And primarily, you make the case that the relationships, or excuse me, the region's relationship to flight and air travel is in fact a complicated one. So what is missed in the story of the heartland when people just take a 30,000-foot view of the region? And what is the region's relationship to flight and to air travel? Yeah, so the term flyover state, as you know, is just such a dismissive term, right? It, it's just all about hierarchy and literally looking down on the people who are flown over. It implies that the only perspective that really matters is the perspective from the airplane window, the person looking down, and that there's really nothing down there on the ground worth of note, right? That the the flyover states are essentially boring, dull, and um, insignificant. Um, that there's nothing down there, I, I guess another way of putting it, nothing down there but Flatville. And I have to say, as a resident of central Illinois, that there is a lot of flat land um, in the Midwest, but it doesn't mean that it's uninteresting. So uh, a while ago I mentioned how swampy um, uh the wet prairies of the uh, Midwest, primarily east of the Mississippi, um, were historically. And the outcome was that um, the, the pioneers who um, wanted to be able to cultivate all that swampland tiled and drained it. And they used uh, techniques in many cases that they had brought with them from Europe or had learned from European um, agricultural writings on tiling and draining. And what they did in essence is they laid clay tiles um, under their fields um, that fast-tracked water into drainage ditches that they dug that then fast-tracked the water even farther downstream, ultimately uh, ch channeling it into the Mississippi um, where, um, you know, it would just, uh, you know, uh, channel the water out faster, rendering their fields drier. 
So what this means is that the formerly very wet prairies of the Midwest have been thoroughly uh, transformed by massive engineering works that you cannot see from airplane windows unless you really, really know what to look for. And then, you know, you still have it has to be in your in your imagination because you can't actually see the clay tiles because they're underground. And that's just one example of the kinds of things that you miss from the airplane window, right? You know, something on such a massive scale. I think if you laid all the tiles just from Illinois alone, end to end, they would circle the earth um, six times. There's six million tiles under the ground. And yet the flyers over have no idea, you know, most of them, that they are down there. Um, So then... When I wrote that chapter on flyover states, I, I kind of wanted to play with the idea, right, of like what it means to be the the flown over region. And part of thinking about the region as the flown over region um, is is realizing that the people on the ground have actually looked up and that they've paid a lot of attention to their own place in the world. They have their own views on how they're positioned in the, in the middle of everything. And that aerial connections are actually a significant part of that story. So one of the most surprising things that I discovered um, in the course of my research was the importance of birds uh, to rural people um, in the 19th century through at least World War I. That I hadn't realized how important um, um, birds, in many cases migratory birds, um, wild birds were, um, to uh, protein on the part of rural people who hunted them, um, in, including, you know, species of birds that are now like protected, right? Various types of plovers that, you know, you would never hunt now. Um, but back in the 19th into the 20th century were quite commonly um, hunted uh, for food. But the story is bigger um, than just a, a story of relying on birds um, for protein. And that's because prior to the invention of synthetic pesticides, uh, rural people relied on bird for insect pest control. And they realized, in part through their observations um, on their own farms and in part through scientific studies on the part of people who would dissect birds, right, and look at you know the, what was in their crops, what they had consumed um, uh, prior to being uh, killed and dissected, is that it, you know, birds were major insect um, eaters. And as bird populations um, began to fall um, in many cases and um, and to change with like opportunistic invasive species uh, uh, such as the English sparrow coming in and um, um, uh, native species that were known as being more insectivorous or more insect uh, eating began to decline, um, farmers became quite anxious about what this might mean for agricultural productivity. Um, and they had all these, you know, scenarios in their heads about things like locust, you know, kinds of infestations that could completely wipe them out. And and the realization that they didn't have the capacity to do anything about it if they didn't have their allies, the birds. So that led them to become a major uh, constituency for things such as international treaties um, to uh, provide for bird protection. And when the first treaties were negotiated initially with Canada and subsequently with Mexico, it was the U.S. Department of Agriculture, not the State Department. It was the Egg Department that was the um, uh, bureaucracy that negotiated those treaties. And the reason is because birds were understood as being important for food security. And ditto for trying to figure out where migratory birds went. It was the U.S. Department of Agriculture 
that uh, helped to fund um, various ornithological expeditions to figure out, you know, uh, the entire um, seasonal um, cycle of birds um, for reasons of trying to figure out um, how populations could be uh, sustained, again, with the ultimate intent being to uh, provide for food security. So the, the point is, is that the people on the ground in these flown over states looking up were paying plenty of attention to the birds, you know, that were um, landing in their uh, fields and, and trees. They also paid a lot of attention to the weather, um, which, you know, just seems so obvious now. Of course, the weather for farmers, because it is, you know, it has implications for whether they'll go out of a business or um, uh, make a profit in, in any given year, that they're absolutely dependent on the weather. So farmers were a major audience then for, um, you know, various um, uh, meteorological writings that tried to, you know, figure out where the weather systems came from, um, involving in some cases, um, you know, complicated maps about African winds that then would hit the Americas and come up the Mississippi Valley and being in the tornado belt, they were particularly concerned about, you know, why tornadoes and what causes tornadoes. And there's a like fascinating body of writing um, that initially positions tornadoes as kind of like tropical uh, weather storms um, that can be lumped with things like hurricanes and cyclones. And it's only over the course of time uh, uh, towards the end of the 19th into the 20th century that tornadoes become classified in a category of their own which has the implication of moving um, the Midwest out of the you know, tropical parts of the world into this zone of its own on the borderline, um, basically between northern weathered patterns and southern weathered patterns, leading farmers to see themselves like they're right in the middle of these north-south uh, weather wars. Um, fortunately, from their perspective, you know, closer to the north than they had been before, um, but still really on, on the edge of kind of two um, geographical um, systems, one skewing northern and more white and one skewing southern and, um, and uh, darker. So, so that's, you know, one of the things that trying to get at um, uh, the perspectives of people on the ground looking up um, revealed. But I should also say that um, the Midwest has historically been a place to land and take off. And that is a huge part of what it means to reflect on flyover uh, narratives. So let, let me start with the example of long distance ballooning. So um, the earliest um, races, which were quite popular um, at the end of the 19th century um, for um, total distance covered and for total time in the air, um, the earliest races in the balloon circuit brought people from across the United States and from um, uh, Western Europe in particular together in these international competitions. And the ones that were launched in the United States were often launched from Midwestern uh, cities, places such as um, um, uh, Indianapolis um, and uh, St. Louis, uh, because the ballooners didn't want to go down over water, right? Like if you launch from New Jersey or a place like that, there was a certain risk involved or ditto if you launch from like Cleveland um, or Detroit. But if you launch from, you know, the heart of the heartland, then odds were you would go down over land. Although there were some, you know, scary cases of balloons that actually made it to the Great Lakes and, and then, um, you know, started to go down. But the sum of the matter is that farmers like working in their fields then would see these balloons passing overhead and they would sometimes get ballast uh, dumped on their heads. They would hear voices calling to them from the heavens. And there was this whole array of uh, reports of UFO sightings in um, 
the earliest years of the 20th century, um, where, where people would report seeing lights and hearing sounds in the sky in the night. And I think that's definitely connected to these long distance uh, balloon uh, races. So there was a sense of being on like some kind of circuit with that. And then ditto for uh, the earliest um, airplanes. So as the word barnstorming suggests, early aviation had a rural component um, that um, it was, you know, often uh, reliant on farm fields, right, for um, for runways, places uh, to, to land. And you can see in um, county fairs in the earliest years of the 20th century um, that it was like obligatory, pretty much, um, at first to have uh, balloon ascensions. Um, in which hot air balloons um, would rise up. And in many cases, somebody then um, would jump out with a parachute attached to like add to the drama and excitement. But then subsequently to have uh, little biplanes um, take off um, that would then do all kinds of really incredible acrobatics um, in the air to you know excite uh, the crowds. And the people who performed those uh, aerial stunts, many of them uh, were rural Midwesterners um, in origin, um, but there was also this kind of international cast of globe-trotting characters who were on this uh, aerial performance uh, circuit that they would pass through these small midwestern um, towns for their for their county fairs to perform feats of you know aerial um, uh, daring and and wonder, and then all that ultimately fed into military um, aviation. Um, especially um, during World War One, which is when it, it took off. And in the county that I take as my starting point, there was a base that was constructed, a Chanute Air Base, in 1917 to train pilots to fly um, with um, the intent, which was realized, of sending them to France um, to um, perform reconnaissance and aerial combat uh, missions. And the people who staffed... Um, that base. Um, many of them had gained military experience uh, serving as far away as uh, the U.S. colony of the Philippines. And then more immediately, some had been involved in um, the Mexican um, expedition um, under um, Pershing and had uh, flown various sorties into um, Mexico. And so then having done that, they came to central Illinois to teach um, aviation to um, new recruits. And the military liked the rural Midwest for um, air training, at least in the warmer months of the year, um, because of the grid, um, which made it easy for pilots to navigate um, before, you know, they had good control panels. They would just follow follow the grid to figure out where they were um, going. And because all those fields that I mentioned had been tiled and drained, provided great places to land. Um, so, so plane after plane went down um, at this air base or in the surrounding fields, and pilot after pilot walked away uh, because they landed in relatively soft fields of corn. And as for the appeal of um, the air base, you know, for a rural community, it's just astounding when you look at the the photographs that thousands of people would come from you know quite some distance in their Model Ts. Um, to to watch the pilots fly day after day after day um, because the pilots did the same thing that the entertainers did at the county fairs. They would do loop-de-loops and, and death dives and so forth, thinking that would be a useful set of skills to have for aerial combat. And they also militarized the airspace um, of the surrounding uh, towns that uh, quite often they would fly quite low down Main Street. Um, which I realized um, initially upon reading um, an account of a pilot who had, who had been um, of flying uh, down the street of a town and hit a plane, uh, excuse me, his plane had hit a, a flagpole 
uh, causing him uh, to to wreck, which you know just drew to my attention that they're not flying way overhead, but they're you know showing off for the people on the ground, and all kinds of other accounts of um, you know planes that um, you know terrified uh, horses, uh, drawing carts that um, um, uh, landed. Uh, on and uh, proximate to railroad uh, tracks that really, you know, make it clear that people in the surrounding communities understood their proximity to the war in Europe uh, very powerfully due to um, due to early military aviation and and its visibility to them from the ground. So all that is kind of a long-winded answer, but the takeaway for thinking about flyover states is that if you kind of look at aerial connections um, from the ground, it suggests that um, people in rural communities, even in the middle of a major land mass, understood themselves as having close connections to people quite far away via the easily transversible space of the air. And it also suggests that maybe some of the most provincial people in you know, whatever kinds of stories you hear about flyover country or flyover states are the flyers over who really don't understand these, you know, just rich and and um, astounding um, histories of what was happening um, in um, the Great Red, you know, heart of the United States at the time. So this is a, this is a, a a very rich book, and there's several topics that we haven't even had a chance to get into on the podcast today. But I'm wondering, and this is usually uh, maybe a bit of a, a difficult question, but I always like to ask my guests nonetheless, if there's one takeaway that you hope people come away from this book with, what might it be? What's sort of the, the, the central the central idea that you hope your readers come away from this book thinking about? Oh, my gosh. I have rambled on. I have so much more I want to talk about. And I'm just like really disappointed that I can't tell you of like the story of the two McKinleys and the like the anti-colonialist act activities on like U.S. you know, college campuses in the earliest years of the 20th century and the part of international students. Okay. All the more reason for people to buy and read. Yeah. Don't yeah. Everything. Oh my gosh. Yeah. There's so much more. Um, so as for what I want people um, to take away um, from the book, I think the first thing is I'm part of a much larger movement um, to, to put the Midwest back on the historical map, right. Um, to, to counter a longstanding um, pattern of basically sliding um, this region of the country in historical um, accounts. And I, I want people to understand just how many weird and fascinating stories there are to be found there of, of crayfish destroying, destroying corn crops, of the celebrity, you know, animals that I was talking about, about wireless communication, um, about things like the UFO sightings that I mentioned. Um, on another level, I want people to think about about the nation and and about the role that the heartland has played in national mythologies as the seeming core of the nation, the most um, you know all American uh, place, and and to think about the politics of that, about um, which I think are about drawing lines between insiders and outsiders, and to think about different ways of understanding place 
that are not so much about starting with assumed boundaries and then filling in the the map based on the preconception of what those boundaries might be, um, but to have a different way of looking um, at the world, which is not so much about us versus them, the true heart of the nation versus everybody else, the United States vis-a-vis the world, but to think of the connections that link um, even the seemingly most local of places, even in the seemingly most local of times, which is the time that I write about, um, to, to think about the connections that have stitched the specificities of place to the wider fabric um, of space. And my last question, uh, I always like to get a preview from my guests of what they might be working on next. And I know that this book is not even on shelves yet, so you're probably barely even thinking about this. But if I know historians, I know that you probably have some idea percolating that you might want to start working on in the not-too-distant future. So what do you have planned for your next project, if anything at all? Well, I am digging around. And if anybody has ideas, I would welcome them. But I'm pretty sure I will be writing on the Great Lakes. So originally, I was curious about what it meant to colonize water. And driven by concerns about sustainability, um, specifically what it will mean when water shortage, um, shortages become more acute um, in the U.S. Southwest and even, say, if my own aquifer in Illinois uh, were, were to go dry. Um, so I think those are the reasons why I'm curious um, about the Great Lakes. But I started doing a little bit of digging um, in sources from Um, my main time period, so the late 19th and early 20th century. And the thing that has jumped out to me most so far is power, um, and specifically hydroelectric power, um, which, of course, has settler colonial politics in terms of um, the people affected in many cases by um, taking land and and by damming up different uh, waterways. Um, But that also kind of on spools in ways I hadn't expected in terms not only of like U.S., British, Canadian uh, cooperation and collaboration across um, the U.S. uh, Canadian border, but ultimately I'm even beginning to turn up a couple leads on um, collaborations then to invest in um, hydropower and electrification in um, the Caribbean and Central America that um, was a collaborative effort on the part of like Canadian, British, and U.S. capital, which goes against, in part, um, the assumption that U.S. power um, in the Caribbean and Central American um, was pretty much U.S. power, that it emanated strictly from the United States. And if, if these leads, you know, kind of take me anywhere, it suggests kind of different origin stories and different geographies um, to um, to um, the exercise of, of U.S. power um, in um, the Caribbean and Central America. So we shall see. And if and if any listener has leads and suggestions for me, please send them my way. That sounds like a great project, and I hope you get some some emails with some ideas. That would be super. 
Kristen Hoganson is professor of history at the University of Illinois. Her newest book, The Heartland and American History, is out just this month in April 2019 with Penguin Press. Thank you so much for joining us today, Kristen. And thank you, Steve. It has really been a pleasure. <laughs> 